This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome in to the show. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the now wiser Simon Belanger. Happy birthday, buddy. I know it was yesterday. Happy belated from, from me and the listeners. I am very excited to see you in the flesh in just a few days here. Yeah, it'll be exciting to go to Toronto. Definitely a little stressful at the same time when you're traveling with a baby. I'm sure if we, we have tons of parents uh, listening to the podcast, it's just like three times the stuff that you normally need if you're just traveling on your own. But uh should be fun least, meeting. Yeah. yeah, just meeting the listeners and meeting Dan and Nick in person for the first time too. Oh, yeah, I guess you haven't met them in person yet. Oh, okay. I've played golf with Nick a couple times and uh, just quick run-ins with, with Dan. But uh, no, it'll be great, man. It'll be great, um, and I'm excited to see you. All right, Simone, should we announce uh, the big the big news? Yeah, go for it. Uh, and then I'll add my, my two cents to it afterwards. Okay, sounds good. So as all of you know, we love doing the podcast. We've been doing it since we have been doing it consistently without missing a single episode since the fall of 2019. And for who anyone who creates content, that is truly a grind in terms of consistency and output. And I've been loving it. I personally have been podcasting for seven years now um, in some capacity uh, on and off and then very consistently after. This podcast has achieved roughly 5 million downloads since inception, if you include our previous platform you're using, Simone. And I'm loving it. And I'm not going anywhere, first of all. But uh, it, it is time for me to step back to a once-per-week role. And um, I, the reality is that, uh, one, I, I want to, but two... I, I want to for the listeners as well, because I love doing the Monday releases, the the frameworks, the business breakdowns on specific stocks, specific businesses, specific things that I find very interesting and the growth of my other businesses. It, 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 I feel like someone's got to come in and know the right skills and enjoy it to to do it here with Simone. And so I uh, I'm going to be taking a step back for one of the episodes per week that is that is kind of the big news yeah the the thursday episode so it'll be the thursday um, episode yeah yeah so basically the news yeah. the news episode i'm taking a step back yeah exactly so the news and earnings so what we're announcing too is we'll be looking for a new co-host uh, with me for that episode um so we posted it on twitter i had a few people reach out i know you had some as well so if people are interested send us an email with a short video hopefully not not too much longer than a minute at canadian investor pod at gmail.com we'll have it in the show notes as well um send it to us 
us if you're hearing this episode in the next week or so. So, you know, don't have to stress out. You have a little bit of time. And there's a couple different things. People are asking me what we're looking for. Um, and just some big buckets here. Obviously, some good investing knowledge. Um, some good macro understanding because that's becoming more and more in the limelight in terms of news. Uh, re- reliability, that's a big one. Uh, to be able to stay on schedule, do your research. Um, obviously, we're not going to babysit, so you have to be able to work independently and be able to stick to that recording schedule because we, you know, we don't want to miss an episode. Good knowledge of the Canadian market, and obviously, we want to make sure that someone has, like Brayden and I have, so good rapport, able to, you know, bring some good insights, but also being able to have some fun back and forth banter uh, because we want it to be entertaining for people and as a lesser thing uh, just because we do talk about it every now and then it's usually me but you know some knowledge of bitcoin and crypto would be a plus but not required so um, that's just a plus if people have a decent understanding it's what i've been responding to people that uh, had been reaching out interested in the role i think that's a good breakdown like you can see anyone who listens to this pod knows like I don't really factor in weekly news and macroeconomics into my investing strategy. So I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm letting you down on those episodes. Uh, and I know many of the listeners are like, Oh, we, we, you know, we love our, the banter between two of you guys. Give this, give this next person a shot for one of the episodes. I think they're going to crush it. Uh, I think that they're going to be able to bring some new insights as well. So, I'm excited, man. And um, yeah, we're not going to rush it. That's no, that's exactly. one <laughs> that's one thing that that we're promising you is we're not going to rush it until we find the right person. But overall, I'm excited because I'm going to start. I'm going to be listening to them and I'm going to learn some stuff, too. So, OK, uh, brother, I'm, I'm pumped to see you. I, I, I feel like I really only see you. I mean, I see you see you yeah. through the screen a lot. It's not the, it's uh, not the same but, <laughs> but I don't see you see you in real life really only probably once a year. So this will be this will be sweet. Yeah, I think it, it's going to be really, uh, really awesome to see people. I think we have what over 100 people already registered for yeah, the over 100 tickets were sold. Yeah. I, I did. Uh, you know, if you're listening to this, it comes out Thursday, July 6th. The meetup is on th- Friday, July 7th. I I did release a few extra tickets. If you want to last minute, come on down. Uh, it'll be fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So now I know after all these announcements, we'll move on to uh, the actual news and earnings part. I don't think there was really uh, not too much in terms of earnings, but still a bit of a lull in terms of that, I think, at this time of year. But uh, there's still some news and one big part of the news if people aren't paying attention i think they should be paying attention to this so happened a couple weeks ago i know dan and nick talked about it a little bit on their podcast but i wanted to dig us a little bit deeper just to explain what it means to people so osfi which is the office of the superintendent uh, superintendent of financial institution said announced that they were raising capital requirements for Canada's big banks. So they supervise and regulate federally registered banks and insurers, trusts, 
and loans company as well as private pension plans that are federally regulated and it's important federally regulated because for example people know i'm well aware of how pensions work there are a lot of pension plans that are provincially regulated that would not fall under osfi so i think that's important to to know here Effective November 1st, 2023, OSFI is raising the level of domestic stability buffer, also known as DSB, to 3.5% of the total risk-weighted asset. It was last increased in February of 2023 from 25 to 3%. So they stated the following reasons for them doing so. First, their systemic vulnerabilities remain elevated for our financial system, high household and corporate debt level and persistent global uncertainty around fiscal and monetary policy so it's kind of funny that you have a regulator saying you know there's a lot of uncertainty about you know fiscal and monetary policy when that's handled obviously part of it by the canadian government and the other part by the uh, central bank so the bank of canada uh, but their their role is to make sure that the banks are in good financial situation and essentially what they're saying is that they they want to make sure that they have a bigger buffer if anything unexpected actually happens. And like I mentioned, this only applies to the big six banks, which are con considered domestic systemically important banks or DSIBs. Some of them are actually globally systemic important banks like TD and Royal Bank, but obviously there's also BMO. Nova, Bank of Nova Scotia, CIBC, and National Bank that fall in that bucket. And DSB is part of the Common Equity Tier 1 Capital Ratio Requirement, also known as CT1. So in short, this capital requirement is there to fund a financial institution business activities, and it's a buffer that allows them to absorb unexpected losses. And it essentially raises the overall CT1 requirement to 11.5% because there's several things that go into that. And if you go on the OSFI uh, website, you'll actually see they have like a, an, an interesting graphic. But essentially, there's one thing that uh, comes from the Basel 3 uh, agreement, which is an international regulatory framework for banks, which Canada adheres to. And this standard was established after 2007-2008 financial crisis. And it requires to have a CT, CT1 ratio of at least 4.5% with higher requirement for DSIB and GSIB banks. So that's why it goes all the way up to 11.5 because there's other things that they incorporate to make sure, depending on the bank, that they're well capitalized. I like this little graphic. So it shows that domestic stability buffer effective November 1st, 2023, 3.5% to go up to 11.5%. But it, it, it makes it very clear the actual levels were 13.1 as of, yeah. as of late April and, and now. So yeah, the average for the big banks. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So they're definitely so in they're good. Well, they're well capitalized from that perspective. Yeah, exactly. So they're in good financial situation from that perspective. But I think it's worth noting that the regulator is saying, okay, there's definitely some potential, you know, turmoil coming ahead. Risk in the system. Yeah, exactly. There's risk in the system and they want to make sure that those banks have, you know, a good buffer. And the other thing which we've talked about for news and earnings when we talk about banks is the loan loss provisions or the provisions for credit losses. Same thing where the banks will 
essentially deduct that from their earnings and put that aside on their balance sheet in case something happens. And what this tells me is... We're probably going to see that continuing for banks because we've seen the big banks in Canada putting more and more money aside. But I wouldn't be surprised if it actually picks up steam and increases even more because, um, you know, the OSFI, the regulator, now there's rumors that they may be um, coming down on some banks uh, for their mortgage lending practices and specifically extending amortization for like 50, 60, 70 years, things like that. So people can still you know, make their mortgage payments. But what's happening in a lot of cases is the interest actually being added up to the capital. So the mortgage is increasing, which is kind of a gray zone. But what will happen is when these people renew their mortgages, they'll have to go back to a 25 or 30 year amortization. And then that could create some issues for the big banks and the financial system. So I think they're kind of looking at all of these things as one. And this you know, the uh, ratio that they're increasing, I think is only one part of the puzzle for them. So 10.5% is the GSIB requirement, I believe. I think so. Yeah, I don't have yeah. it offhand, but I think that sounded about right. Let me yeah. just Google it. Yeah. yeah, it looks like 10.5%. And that's what I thought it was. But so this puts it at basically an extra full point higher than that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, very interesting. Yeah, so I mean it's it's funny, right? Like the takeaway here is recognizing potential risk in the system coming down the pipeline and trying to get ahead of that. And 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 you know what? Like you got to give our bank regulators a lot of credit here in Canada because they have been v- pretty good at having foresight of of making sure the Canadian banks are in a good position. So when, you know, shit hit the fan south of the border in 08, they were largely like, you know, it's 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 all good over here. We're we're hanging out, we're chilling. And um I, I would say that they deserve some credit. So whatever whatever they're gonna yeah. they want to do here, I, I would say, you know, you guys yeah. have earned the right you know? I guess time will tell, right? What uh, what exactly happens? And I totally agree with you. I think it's a prudent thing to do. Uh, but there's a lot of different uh, forces, and without getting into that, because we have other things to talk about at play here, different than 2007 and 2008. But uh, something to keep an eye on, especially if you have investment in Canadian banks, you should be aware of these kind of things. That's right. Yep. And uh, I, I've we've talked about it before. I've been very vocal about this. Canadian retail investors blindly own banks because they 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 understand how their retail banking works, and that's basically the extent of it. These are very complicated, gigantic institutions uh, that are not well understood. And um, if you're going to own equity, common equity in a business, you should understand it well. And these are businesses that take some time to understand it well. So, so if you do own them, that doesn't mean sell them. It no. means take some time to understand them. Uh, and that's my recommendation to you. All right. Apple has done it. Uh, we're here at the, the market open two minutes ago. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know if we're still holding that okay. status. <laughs> let me, let me see here. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're still good. Three trillion 
in market cap for the world's largest business, Apple. Uh, so it became the first publicly traded U.S. business to one trillion in market cap on August second, twenty eighteen. It has hit two trillion on August nineteenth, twenty twenty. So basically, just two years later, and now. Uh, you know, roughly two and a half, no, almost three years later, Apple has hit a tr- three trillion in market cap. Uh, spectacular. It makes you realize how dirt cheap the stock was, uh, when there was pessimism around the iPhones in the mid 2010s. And, uh, it's, uh, this thing just keeps chugging on. It certainly does. Speaking of banks, at what point does this just become your digital bank? This business, like they have so much optionality with you, just glued to their to their ecosystem at this point. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> Apple just keeps chugging along. Um, you know, I've said it again. I think for a lot of people, it's just this um, Apple and Microsoft are these like ultimate like blue chip stocks now, um, which are not without you know, like. They're not perfect businesses. They're very good businesses. Don't get me wrong, but I think people have this, you know, idea that it'll just continue indefinitely, and it very well might be. But there's definitely some, uh, you know, potential headwinds coming along. I think Apple, just one of them, for example, is just what's happening where uh, their factories in China trying to move part of that production over in India, um, you know, and potential regulatory issues. But I mean, I own the stock. I can't complain. I mean, they they're doing really well, but you pay a premium, whether it's Microsoft or Apple, you pay a premium for the amount of potential growth that you're getting. But in exchange, you get these cash flow generating machines. Absolutely. And and, and you're right. I, for some reason, the geopolitical risk doesn't get baked into the valuation. We've talked about this extensively. And you know what it does is it makes me think TSMC is a really cheap stock. That's the way that's the way I look at it right now is it's like that 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 feels like an extremely cheap stock because, you know, they're tied at the hip right now uh, is the reality of it. And uh, yeah, we'll see what happens here with Apple. Of course, the business is spectacular. Uh, Of course, people are locked into the ecosystem. Of course, the products are beautiful. And of course, they have tons of optionality. I, it, it has to, sitting at $3 trillion in market cap. But it is difficult to get there on any spreadsheet to underwrite some, some decent returns. I, I can get there a little easier with Microsoft, um, just with the ridiculous growth on the cloud business. But uh, that, that aside, you're right. I think it's been this flight to safety that's bid up these two names in particular. And I would say like the, the golden seven at the top of the NASDAQ right now that have just gone bonkers this year. It's, it's one, it's, it's, there's, it's a long list of stocks that like you, you don't really want to sell. You just want to keep owning them. Don't sell things that are, that the businesses are executing really well. But I wouldn't hate the idea of, taking some profits and that's against my investing religion uh but this game has nuances and sometimes you have to make decisions on your own and 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 that's personally how i'd feel i look at something like 
TSMC in large cap space. That's got a tremendous future. Uh, is not without its geopolitical risk, but all of tech is, you know, <laughs> under the exact same thing that TSMC is uh, sitting at what, like 16 times trailing 12 month earnings. So roughly half the multiple. It makes it really does make you think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think too. Yeah, and just a uh, just double click on the flight to safety, like we were talking about, and you know, especially if you think about investors that uh, maybe retired or close to retirement, a bit older, that may not have grown up with technology as much as some of us, but you know, they probably have an iPhone, they know Microsoft products and things like that. Like Apple and Microsoft, it's a very easy company for, you know, older generations to invest in, even if they don't have, you know, the most knowledge and technology, technology and those type of companies. Like, I think you can feel pretty comfortable owning an Apple or Microsoft because you know, these names pretty well in your everyday life. And, you know, it's hard to find anyone regardless of their age that doesn't interact with those two companies to some extent. Right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, like they're, they're, they're fairly easy to understand when you for now multiple decades have probably been a customer of exactly. of one yeah. of these two companies. And 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 that's not to say like people are just investing anecdotally. These businesses are incredible. Like you mm-hmm. know, they're they're so incredible. Like the best consumer facing product ever uh in the iPhone and what has become a utility in terms of stability of cash flows in Microsoft. It's it's a utility with extremely high operating margins. Like what that grows and that has global distribution. Like what is there to not like there, right? Like and it owns the the consumer side, the business side, and the infrastructure computing side. What's not to like? Uh, so I, I fully get it. And, and, and I'm a Microsoft shareholder myself and, and you have been now too for a long time. It's, it's easy to get there on understanding how incredible some of these large cap technology companies are. Uh, it's, it's easy to get there and you've seen how much they've risen in, in price this year, but off a pretty terrible 2022, maybe not for Apple, but. Uh, 2022 is rough for a lot of these tech names. Yeah. So let's not have too short of a uh, memory. No, exactly. Now we'll move on to a company as far as possible from tech as I can think of. And that's the Savers Value Village IPO. So for those who are not familiar with this company, you probably have seen obviously Value Village. Um, their stores, they're all across Canada and the US. So they're for-profit thrift stores, which may come to surprise to some people. Um, and they IPO'd last week and on their first day listed the share pop 27%. They have 317 stores in the US and Canada with 153 of those in Canada. So they almost get half of their revenues coming from Canada, just shy of that, which is not something I expected, to be honest. And they did $1.4 billion in sales last year. And they are profitable on both a earnings basis and free cash flow basis. And personally, it's not hard to like a company like this 
because they essentially get donations so they don't have to pay for their mar merchandise and then they sell it at a profit. However, I was reading that apparently they do give a portion of the money to nonprofits or um, a portion of the donation, but I need to do more research on that part. Uh, the other reason I'm intrigued by this company is just because of the current economic environment. So we've seen how well, and you've been hammering the drums on that, how well Dollarama has fit. Uh, in the last couple of years and to me this is a very similar type of business in terms of how resilient it can be in different economic environments. So right now, obviously, people know we had high inflation the last couple of years. Looks like it's coming down a little bit, but for the most part, you know, people have higher housing costs, higher food costs, uh, their salaries, you know, the data we've seen is salaries have not really kept up with rising costs as well. So a a company like Value Village or Savers Value Village, I think, could really benefit from that where people have to shift their spending habit and, you know, save money once the essentials are paid, like food and lodging, for example. So after that, you know, you still have to spend money on certain things, whether you want to buy clothes, whether you want to buy kids toys, whatever it is. And I think Value Village would be a really big benefactor from that. And it's a company as there's a couple quarters coming out of them being publicly listed i'll definitely want to have a closer look and talk about it on the podcast because it's i don't know it's like <laughs> it looks like a good business model i i have a hard time not liking just at on the surface maybe i'll feel is it a franchise model i don't know yeah that's a good question i think they're company operated but that's just a guess yeah i'd have to look because um mm. you know it definitely reminds me of uh Oh, what's the the owner of Plato's Closet? Winmark. Winmark. Oh yeah, Winmark. I yeah. remember when you talked yeah, about that. Yeah, I remember when yeah. I did a, a dive on Winmark. It's basically mm -hmm. they own Plato's Closet, uh the baby store. Was it what's it, Once Upon a Baby? What's it called? Oh, I don't I don't remember. We we've, we've <laughs> gone to quite a few baby baby clothes thrift <laughs> stores, so it's uh, probably one Win, of them. Yeah. Yeah, Winmark franchises. Yeah, so it's it's uh played against sports. Uh, Plato's Closet and the babe, the baby one, whatever that, one, <laughs> whatever okay. that one is. I'm sure someone will let let us know. Yeah. yeah, here we go. Our brands played against sports. Music go round. Once upon a child, that's what it's called. Uh, Plato's Closet and Style Encore. So the big ones are Once Upon a Child, Plato's Closet, and Played Against Sports. Those are the those are the big three. And if you look at the business, it's a franchise, and I'm very curious if this is as well, but they crush it. They crush it. The, uh, the margins uh, from the franchise model, obviously amazing, but also on an operational model for the, the franchisee, people give you free stuff or almost free, and you sell it for a pretty nice margin. And it's a... They also do really well in seasonal type situations. Value Village does like Halloween, uh, Christmas, like a, a lot of those events are huge revenue drivers for the business as well. Cause people need that kind of stuff like seasonally. It's an interesting name. I'll have to dive into, uh, the filing for that. That's one where they went public because these models work really, really well. And there's no denying that. I think 
Windmark is a perfect example of how, how well it has worked. Yeah. Yeah. And especially like it just seems to me like a model that would be resilient in any kind of economic environment, too, because even when things are going well, you know, the reality is like some people still need to um, shop at discounted stores, which that would fall into. And, you know, maybe they they do better when economic times are tough. But, yeah, it seems like, you know, depending how it looks and after reviewing the business, it seems like a business like you could probably own, whether it's Windmark or this one, uh, you know, for a very long time and not have to worry about it. Windmark has been a 32 bagger before the dividend since 08. Pretty good. So, it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you've done all, you've done all right. Uh very interesting. I'm going to look at this S1. What, what what's the market cap on for the IPO now? Uh I it's, I think it's pretty small. I think it's 1. Point something when I check. Uh Yeah. I'll have to find it. Um okay, very interesting. I'm going to uh I'm going to check this out. Pretty sweet. It looks like the market cap's almost 4 billion. Oh, never mind. Okay, a bit bigger. Yeah. Yeah. But it's that's big. peanuts I mean, compared to Value Apple, Village so. is a pretty yeah. big brand that <laughs> yeah. reaches a lot of you know, rural, reaches pretty rural markets too. You know. I don't know. I know we have a few in Ottawa and uh, yeah. in the region, so uh, you know, that's where that's one of the places I used to go to buy cheap Celine Dion records and then sell them on eBay for a profit. Did you do that, you hustler? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I used to do that when I was like 14, 15. Yeah. Dude, I love those stories. <laughs> uh, this is the stuff that fires me up. Like when kids do real entrepreneurial stuff. Uh you you could see me fleecing kids with their Pokemon cards, you know. I'm like, this one's not really worth a lot. And then I, I knew it was worth a lot. And I'd trade them some shit card. You know, you gotta you gotta be hustling from day one. All right, let's uh Let's do this S&P return bucket since 1928. So I've been fascinated with the market performance this year, uh, you know, compared to last year. And, and, and I, I believe it's been an interesting experience for those who are new to markets. You know, we, you know we've been doing this for, for a while now, but look at the numbers. How many brokerage accounts were opened in, in 2020, 2021? And the market doesn't just go up. I think we've learned that. It is usually up big and down big uh, in, a, in a major way. It rarely does what you'd expect. And I touch on this a lot because it's important to understand the historical returns and set expectations. Statistically, more self-directed investors are, are in the market now and, and realizing, hey, this is probably a wonderful long-term wealth generation machine and a very bad gambling machine. You can't just day trade options to uh, to a couple billion. It doesn't work like that. Now, there's a couple really important takeaways from this graphic that you can see here on the screen. If you're a listener or if you're a subscriber of JoinTCI.com, you get to see our beautiful faces, but also these graphs as we put them up on the screen. So that is at JoinTCI.com. So... There is annual return buckets broken down by, you know, tens of percent. So zero to 10, 10 to 20%, 20 to 30%. And then also on the downside. So 
down single digits, down between 10% and down 20% from negative 20 to negative 30. The most common bucket is the market is up in the teens of 10 to 20%. That is the most common bucket. Next, 20 to 30%. So like where we're sitting at this year, that's a, that's a, uh, another common one. 2021, for instance, 2017, 2009, after the, the, the great financial crisis, those years are very helpful. And then we have lots of returns, even in the 30 to 40% a year bucket. Zero to 10 and minus 10 to 0% are also very common return buckets. So those are, you know, as a normal distribution curve, it looks exactly like what you would see. Now, here's what's really interesting. It's almost never been, it's been once since I think 78. One time since 78, the market has returned between 8 and 10%. Now, that's phenomenal. Like in the way, like st- statistics are insane because someone, when someone says, what does the market typically do? Like what does the S&P 500 typically do? What do you say? Yeah, around 10%, I think. Yeah. People say between 8 and 10%. Yeah. That's yeah. like, the, but the market almost never does that. You have years where like 1954, 1958, 1935, 1933, 1928, 2021, where you have 30 to f- over 50% gains on the S&P 500. And then you have years like 2008, 1937, 1931, 2002, 74, 1930, where the market's down between 30 and 40%. Those are stinger years. And so the takeaway here is that there's, there's two really important takeaways I want to touch on here. One, the market is very, has very little, if any, maybe zero, statistical correlation between this year's return and the previous year's return. The stock market doesn't care about arbitrary time frames set out by the calendar. This is important to think about, right? Like we structure our lives and our calendar by a year, January through December. The stock market doesn't care. <laughs> it really doesn't care. It's an arbitrary time frame. Number two, which I just touched on. Common wisdom says the markets goes up between eight and ten percent year, eight to ten percent per year, on average. Maybe you know, uh, financial advisor would say conservatively somewhere between maybe six and eight, five and eight. But it almost never does. It's usually up big or down big. You get these really like long bull runs to the upside balanced out by many years of double digit returns, single digit negative returns, and sometimes down bigly when the stock market faces sharp drawdowns like we saw in 2022 or the economy slips into a recession. So this is just a report important reminder. I, I love pulling this kind of data. I typically do it you know every month or two on what you can ex- expect, set expectations. Because the only thing that is normal in the stock market is volatility. A smooth line 
doesn't exist. Only when you zoom out, you know, 150 years and you log adjust it, does the market actually look very smooth. In the in the short term, in the short term, it is anything but that. Yeah, and I think I'll add to you know when you look at different time periods, yes, you can pick arbitrarily, you know, different periods to fit your narrative. But I think for people, it's also important to remind that remind yourself that when you get closer to retirement or needing the funds, I would say at least you know five to ten years within that kind of target retirement date, you should start thinking about that and potentially allocating your portfolio slightly differently so you're able to weather these kind of more volatile, you know, markets uh, in the shorter term because it's, you know, we're probably going to see a five-year period at some point in the future where the market, you know, the stock market returns either flat or negatively. And that's not great if you're in a decumulation phase. So being able to have kind of a backup plan, whether it's, you know, having some extra cash that's yielding 5% or something like that right now, I think that's that's something that's really important because if not, you're at the mercy of the market and no one wants to be forced to take money out when they're investing investments are in a 10, 20, 30% drawdown. So your retirement date or whenever you need the money by itself, it's a bit of an arbitrary kind of time frame, right? When you think about it. So I think it's really important to, you know, start thinking about, you know, making some adjustments to your portfolio because, you know, you can be 100% allocated to equities if you want, and that's fine. And you can have kind of safer stocks, but you have to be aware that you may end up not necessarily getting the outcome that you want if you're, you know, you're in retirement and you're facing a big market drawdown. Yeah, well said. I mean, you got to, you got to know yourself too, right? Like, exactly. Yeah. Like, I don't, you look at my portfolio and it's like, you know, roughly half is in one position if you include the spinoffs of Constellation. Is that for everyone? Absolutely hell to the no. Like that's like some people call me nuts. Um, now it's done tremendously well, but it's still nuts for a lot of people. But for me, it's not. Uh, for me, I know that business very well. And I know that it's made up of around 900 individual different companies, uh, you know, similar to like a Berkshire where it's, it's not really just one company. It's, it's, it's many, many companies. It's a basket of companies inside of one. But if it was to face a large drawdown and you didn't know that you didn't understand it, that kind of conviction is not, it's not created in a week, a month, a quarter, even a year. That conviction doesn't just come about and it, and, and it cannot be borrowed from me or anyone else. And so that's, that's important to think about. Yeah. And that's also important to, you know, have a buffer so you're not forced, whether you have conviction or not, right? Like it's, it's one thing we talk about conviction, which is really important, but you know, you might have the most conviction, but if you're stuck in a bind and you need money and that's your only kind of out is to sell a company that you have a lot of conviction in, 
it's it's not a great spot either. So I think it's just some, you know, making sure that people do look at their portfolio as a whole and, you know, they don't find themselves in a situation where they have to sell a business on the cheap that they really love. Um, so I'll stop sharing this. And now the last thing I wanted to talk about, and this one's pretty, I want to hear what you're talking about. Uh, sorry, what you think about in terms of what Costco is doing with their membership crackdown. And they announced last week that essentially they were pulling a Netflix. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding a little bit, but um, it's kind of, you know, what they're doing. So what they will be doing is they'll be requiring members to show their membership cards even at self-checkout. So apparently Apparently, that was a well-known hack that people would take a friend's card, go in, I guess, show it quickly as they go into the Costco warehouse. And then I've never would... done such a thing. I've no, never done never. such a thing, Simone. I would never do that. That's 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 <laughs> dishonest. I've only that's done dishonest. it okay. a couple times. Yeah. And um, well, I've, I've had a Costco membership since I think I've moved out from my parents. So, um, you know, I go enough. I think, you know, it may make sense if you just go once or twice a year to ask a friend for their card. But we go on a monthly basis. So for us, you know, we get the executive one where we essentially get the membership paid for just with the cash back that you get. So Absolutely. for us, it, it, we go enough that it's worthwhile. But for people wondering why they're doing that, it's just because the business model of Costco is pretty simple. They essentially get most of their profits from those membership fees. That's because their margins are razor thin and you know, they don't have much room here. So I think what we're seeing, and if you look at their financial statements, you'll actually notice that like other, every other retailer, their profit margins have definitely shrunk over the last couple of years. They were consistently around uh, this, I'm talking here, gross profit around 13%, but have dipped around 12% uh, last year. So definitely- Is that see- net, net profit? Net uh, no, those margin. are gross margins. Yeah, I was going to say, because I think that's usually where their gross margins are. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I forgot to add it, but I'm like 99% sure it's gross margin. And the operating margins are also down, but they've held that up a bit better. And really, you know, membership fees, when you think about it, there's a little bit of overhead costs, you know, for printing the card. And I'm sure like, you know, membership services and stuff like that. But for the most part, I mean, it's almost straight to the bottom line. So it makes sense that they would want to crack down on that, especially if they're a bit reluctant still to increase those membership fees. So that's a way for them to not necessarily increase the fees or maybe increase them, but less uh, by making sure that anyone that goes to Costco actually has a paid membership. It's kind of confusing too, right? Because to the best of my knowledge, they don't break out. Like they, they, that's just an aggregate. The margins are like, you know, 2% net profit. But that's because you have this huge base of revenue of 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 selling goods. And then this like really, really small uh, revenue in, in comparison of membership fees. But the margins on that are like, you know, operating margins on that are like, you know, basically hundred percent. Like there's, there's no real, like it's hundred percent operating leverage. So I, I would love to see the breakdown further if they, if they broke it out. Yeah, no, I, I'd love to see that too. And you almost have to think as Costco as a, yeah, a subscription business and what they offer in terms of subscription is some really good prices. 
Like it's essentially how you have to see Costco where, you know, the the money they make on selling those goods, it's just an afterthought. And really the bread and butter is that good old membership. That's right. Like for, for context, people here, it's like we're talking about gross margins of retailers, like 12 and a half, 13% is what you typically see from, from Costco on like a gross margin perspective. So, you know, cost of goods sold compared to what they sell those English muffins for that you get 45 of them and I just need six. Uh, classic Costco. 13% you can compare to around 25% from Walmart, for instance, on gross margins. So it gives you an idea of it roughly being half. And so that's basically where they are adding value to their customers is they take a much much lower markup on the actual, uh, you know, what they're charging versus cost of goods sold for the items in the store. That's the value proposition, just to give people some idea on them versus Walmart. Retail is a hard business. Like I, I haven't looked at those recently, but I know like net profit margins are very low for retail in general. It's a reason why you have these massive companies is because they do, yes, they do well. They make uh, quite a bit of money, but they do so because they have scale. Um, that's it. It's a, it's a game of scale and that's essentially, that's what becomes their moat. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I forget what his name is on Twitter. I'd love to give him a shout out, but he did, he wrote this awesome thread about why is basically called like why margins are overrated. And I, part of me, part of me agrees. Uh, part of me thinks, okay, there's more to this story, but basically the general concept here is what you're talking about where it's super high volume, super low margin, right? And Buffett always talks about this, right? You have to have a business that sells a few items for really high margin or a ton of items for really low margin. And the idea that both businesses can both achieve really high returns on invested capital shows that they both can work exceptionally well, just depending on the business model. Like there's no real, there's no real correlation between those margins and a return on invested capital uh, is basically the the thought of this thread. And I thought it was pretty interesting um, because you're right. I think I have a, a, a bias towards high margins, but mm-hmm. maybe that's just the software guy in me. Probably. Yeah, probably. I mean, they're just different types of businesses. And, you know, I'll ask anyone, try to try to open a retailer that competes with Walmart. Let me know how that works out for you. Yeah, exactly. First, you're right? going to need like probably tens of billions of dollars, if not hundreds of billions to be able to build that like infrastructure and then obviously you have to assume that Walmart will almost lay down and not do anything about you, which clearly they won't do. Um, so when you think about all these things all at once, uh, yeah, good luck for any business wanting to do that. Right. Like it's like, have we got it all wrong? It's actually the low margin, high capex intensive businesses that have super durable competitive advantages and incredible incremental return on invested capital. It's uh, it's kind of frame breaking from, you know, the beautiful business of software as a service, but probably more durable, right? Like, <laughs> I guess it's all about what you know and what you can understand. That should be the theme of today's show. What you know and what you can understand is what you should own. 
Because if you don't, you get one of those years I'm talking about. You get you get 02, 74, 1930, 37, 08. The world collapses in terms of the market performance. And Simona, I'm like, I don't know what I own. I don't. It's like me if I own a bank and shit, can one of the Canadian banks and and shit went south. I don't know them well enough. And I think people lie to themselves that they do. Yeah. That's, that's my, that's what I think, but I yeah. could be wrong. I think I, I know them decently. And even I feel like I don't know them well enough to, to own them. That's just the way I view banks. And I see enough kind of red flags right now where it's not making me want to own them, but I could be completely wrong. And that's just, you know, it just shows that. You know, I have my limits. I know you have yours too. And there's just things I understand better than others. I understand the macro decently well, I think as well. But uh, banks, I mean, they, it's just the issue with banks is they're not all the same. <laughs> That's the problem too. There are all different kind of things. And then if you want to understand the plumbing, which is uh, something else to even start understanding. I'm going to share my screen with you. So this guy I know from Toronto, he shared this. So the Nassim Taleb black swan Thanksgiving turkey image is basically the life of a turkey. A thousand and one days in the life of a Thanksgiving turkey. You have the turkey's well-being and growth on the y-axis and days on the x-axis. It's a beautiful up and to the right until Thanksgiving Day, day 1001. Surprise, uh, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna be someone's Thanksgiving dinner tonight, and this is the way I think about banks. Is it's, it's great until it's not, you know. Like this image, I think of owning banks, and that has not been the case for Canadian banks. No, they've performed really well. Yeah, but it's been the case for what hundreds and thousands of regional banks in the U.S. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure thousands, but definitely you know a lot of yeah, a lot of. I'm talking about banks. like since the beginning oh, of drawdowns. civilization. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, like yeah, would, in terms I mean, of like banks have taken many different forms. That would make sense, yeah. And in human you know, civilization, like it's like fiat currency and banks have the life of a Thanksgiving turkey. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> That's. The, I just thought it was a funny, uh, funny correlation. All right, Simone, let's wrap it up. That was the episode. Thanks for listening to the show. We really appreciate you. Uh, last last capital call here for the meetup if you want to come tomorrow night. Link in the show notes. And um, join TCI.com, which is the Patreon page. Just a quick reminder, send a one-minute video if you think you're the guy or gal to take my seat on today's episode, this style of episode. Uh, I, I think we're we're gonna find some A players that uh, add a lot of value to the show. Send a little video to Canadian Investor Pod at gmail.com. That is Canadian Investor Pod at gmail.com. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.